I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Fewer people are convinced by the story each day as they begin to see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. The time for allowing them to make us feel like strangers in our own country is over. We are Americans. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. This is the end game. It's Monday, February 7th, 2022, the 383rd day of dystopia. Before we get started, thank you everybody who has been listening to the show and sharing the show. Obviously the numbers are going up. Part of that is because of the interviews, of course, maybe part of it is because of the format change, but either way, I truly appreciate all of the support. The episode with Dave from the X-22 report that went up on Saturday is already the biggest episode that I've ever done. And people are really sharing a lot of great feedback. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you want to follow along with my thoughts throughout the day and the things that I am reading, the best place to do that is on the Telegram Messenger app. Download the app. Go to t.me slash I'm your moderator. I'm also on Gab and Getter at I'm Your Moderator. The Substack where you can find my writing is I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. And if you are able and want to support the show financially, you can go to kofi.com slash I'm Your Moderator. That's ko-fi.com slash I'm Your Moderator. So over the weekend, there were new developments in the Joe Rogan Spotify saga, and some people found some really interesting information over the weekend. I'm going to share that with you in a second. But the quick version of all of this is that a left-wing organization that basically spends its time attempting to figure out ways to cancel people put together a supercut video of the times on Joe Rogan's show where he had used in referential manner the N-word. He was referring to the N-word, not saying it, not saying it about somebody, not using it for its ability to belittle or demean anyone. He was talking about the word. And that word in particular appears in our culture quite a lot from the left. Most often it's omnipresent in rap music and in rap culture, which, by the way, white people also participate in and they use it. I'm not a person who uses the word. I have said it referentially before, for sure. And I've rapped along with songs before, for sure. But it's not part of my normal vocabulary. And I have enough wherewithal that even if it was, I wouldn't be using it. But at the same time, I don't think that referring to the word by using the word is some grave moral crime. Words matter. Words matter in context. Words matter in intent. And 
We can't always know someone's intent. That's true. That's fine. But you can normally infer things about people's intent based on what you know about them as a person. Joe Rogan doesn't seem to be racist in the least. So compiling a supercut of times that Joe Rogan has used that word and stripping away their context, putting them back to back to make the man look bad is underhanded and cheap and dishonest. And Joe Rogan is the sort of person who should come out and say that. Like, yeah, okay, fine. You don't like that I use that word, that I was referencing that word and saying the entire word in reference as if somehow the act of doing that a handful of times over the last 12 years that he's had his podcast automatically makes him a terrible person. Now, that's the extent to which I will defend Joe Rogan on this. Okay, I think it's unfortunate that we live in a culture where people will go through somebody's past content like that and dredge up things that they've said, take them all out of context, and then put them in a supercut to try to destroy the person and their reputation. It's just low. It's unbecoming. It's undignified. It sucks. But Rogan responded to it absolutely the wrong way, and now he's actually made it worse. And I said when he came out, last week and kind of accepted that Spotify was going to begin labeling his content. And by the way, everyone else's, okay? Joe Rogan wasn't simply agreeing that Spotify could put a little warning label on his podcasts. He was accepting censorship on behalf of everyone on their platform. You know, people like me who don't have 11 million people who have a few thousand people listening to them each day, we don't get a say in that process. All right. So when Rogan says, yes, it's okay that you censor this, and then they take down 30 episodes like they had before, and then they do another 12. And now it's up to, I've seen reported a hundred episodes of Joe Rogan's podcast that have been taken offline by Spotify for various reasons. Not always for the same reason. They're not all racist. They're not all medical misinformation. They're just censoring whatever they decide to censor. And he has accepted it. And when he accepts it and they can get away with doing it to the one person who can legitimately resist it, then they are empowered to do it to everybody and take down whatever they like or whatever the woke mob calls for. And so not only did he give Spotify permission to censor, which he never should have done, especially because they are censoring at the behest of the state. Okay. Remember where this all started. And we're going to circle back to that in a minute. But this initiated with Jen Psaki and Joe Biden in the White House calling for podcasts to be censored. The Brookings Institution study came out saying that podcasts were very dangerous and could cause another very violent insurrection. And then the news media all reported that. And then the White House got to talk about the press coverage and the study, and they called for more of it. And people started canceling Joe Rogan on Spotify, Neil Young, and all of that. Joe Rogan accept censorship. 
A reporter in the White House press room asks Jen Psaki if she's happy now, and she says no. They need to do more. And then some left-wing organization, they get all their resources together and chop up their nice little video. And now Joe Rogan censored more, and now he apologizes again. And maybe this time he will learn his lesson, but I'm not sure if he will. He has a few hundred million reasons not to. This is why it's always compromising. When you are an independent thinker, an artist of any caliber, like if you have an audience and you're producing art and you're an independent thinker, once you sign up with the corporation, your ability to exercise your free thought and free speech is automatically diminished. And this is what people have been afraid of since Joe Rogan and Spotify announced they had a deal in place. Fine. YouTube was going to censor his stuff too. Obviously, I get it. Spotify may have told him, you can say whatever you want. They went back on that immediately and started getting rid of his old episodes. And since then, people have had their doubts. Me included, by the way, and I've expressed them on this podcast plenty of times. Would Joe Rogan have had someone on to talk about election fraud in the end of 2020 or all throughout 2021 if he didn't have the Spotify deal? If he was just a man producing his show on independent platforms that would allow him to speak freely, he could have chosen that route. That was always his route before. There was no reason why he needed to take this new deal, except that it was fantastic financially. And I'm not trying to say that he shouldn't do what he wants and make the money he can make. He certainly earned it. Would he have had someone like Robert Malone or Peter McCullough on a year or a year and a half earlier if he didn't have the Spotify deal? And what difference would that have made publicly? Would they have been able to break the ice on the awful and completely dishonest COVID narrative that dominated the media and dominated public perception for much of the last two years? I mean, Peter McCullough and Robert Malone said a whole lot of things that many of us have been saying since the very beginning with COVID. And it was information that was available from world-renowned scientists and experts and from the CDC itself. People still don't believe that the PCR tests don't work. But it says on the CDC website that they can't distinguish between the cold and the flu and COVID. And that's why they decided to stop using them. We also knew about the cycle threshold. We knew that once it gets over 35, you end up yielding 90% plus false positives. Nonetheless, we have testing spaces and laboratories around the country running them at 40 cycles when they're really supposed to be in the 20 to 25 to 30 range. Did anyone care at the time? No, because there were no big voices in the media that make that information feel legitimate to people. And that's one of the big parts of this problem. Okay, so I can't remember who posted this today. I think it was either Kanakoa or this uh, account called Just Human, but it's a quote from Immanuel Kant. And I uh, studied philosophy in college and studied Kant. So I recognized this quote and I certainly recognized the thought that this quote is expressing. It says, enlightenment is man's emergence from his self-incurred immaturity. 
Immaturity is the inability to use one's own understanding without the guidance of another. This immaturity is self-incurred if its cause is not lack of understanding, but lack of resolution and courage to use it without the guidance of another. The motto of enlightenment is therefore sapere aude, having the courage to use your own understanding. And if you've been listening to my show, you will know that this is a major thing for me. People need to trust their own ability to discern, and they need to be able to trust the people that they're close to, the people closest to us in our lives. We need to hear them out and what they're saying, and we need to ask them questions, and we should expect to have that respect returned to us. Okay, it's not good enough anymore to say, oh, you know, we don't want to talk about that. Let's just have fun. And I'll get into conversations with people where they don't want to keep having the conversation. Oh, we got to stop talking about this. Oh, I can see you spend so much time on this. Well, man, it must be must be really nice to have all that free time. And it's of course, it's always from people who voted for Joe Biden and have worked from home for the last two years. But what that is, is obviously an excuse for why they don't know basic facts about the things they're discussing. Okay, it actually matters that they don't know anything about the subjects they're discussing. They want to say Biden got 81 million real legal American votes. Okay, fine. I'll respect your opinion. I'll respect your conclusion if you allow me to ask questions about it. If I can't ask questions about it and you can't answer the questions, then I know already that you're just repeating the slogans. Okay. And the craziest thing is how many people out there in the country have legitimate doubts about what happened in the election. They've heard enough to know something wasn't right. And that should honestly be everybody. Because the aftermath of the 2020 election was like no other election we've ever experienced. And in truth, the run up to the 2020 election was also like no other election we've experienced. In the two years prior, we had Stacey Abrams claiming that her election for governor in Georgia was stolen, stolen. She still has never admitted that she was actually defeated. She obviously was her election fraud for her election that she was told would work did not work. Sorry, Stacey. And then we had Democrat politicians testifying in hearings, asking questions to experts in hearings about how electronic voting machines could be hacked and manipulated. Watch HBO's Kill Chain, Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar. They talk about it. It's not a conspiracy theory now, and it wasn't then. They already knew exactly how elections could be manipulated. And then they went out and began changing election laws in states all around the country in violation of those states' constitutions. And that's now been made clear in the courts in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. That's two states already where their elections were deemed unconstitutional. They were unconstitutional elections. They should be decertified immediately. And I imagine that they will be in the near future. I guess we'll have to see. And we know they pushed for universal mail-in balloting. They would just mail them out to everybody that was registered to vote, even while knowing 
that there are millions of extra voter registries in all of these states that they don't purge and they don't clean. Why would anyone expect that the 2020 election could ever have been legal and legitimate with all that going on? It's the most obvious conclusion to reach, but yet all of the people who are aware of all of this do not feel secure enough in their own understanding and their own information to speak up for themselves. They can get in trouble for saying those things because the authorities aren't saying them yet. And I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago with Barry Weiss and Bill Maher. It's on the Substack if you want to see it. But the point I was making is these people are not brave truth tellers at the vanguard of the leftist awakening. I mean, maybe they are relative to leftists. But they're only saying these things now that they can't get in trouble for them anymore. They're not talking about election fraud. They're talking about COVID information that most of us have had for two years. Two years. Imagine being wrong about everything for two years. How many mistakes you would make in your life, moral and otherwise. And it turns out that's exactly what has happened. And I'm not trying to make myself out to be a saint, by the way. I only awakened to the truth about what the government was, what the society was, what our financial system was over the last five years or so. Okay, so I've made plenty of mistakes in judgment, moral and otherwise in my life before that. And I have to deal with those and own those. That's just what life is. But we need to stop being afraid to express what we know and can see is true until we have permission. We don't get permission. They don't give you permission. You either stand up and speak the truth as you see it, or you don't. You have to incur the risk of being wrong sometimes. These things are important. They matter. But instead, half of our society is asking the television and the internet for permission. Well, you know, Chris Cuomo and Don Lemon, they, they have something else to say about that election. So I don't know who to trust. I mean, yes, you are my friend who has been at my shoulder for the last 15 years. And yes, I know you're smart and pretty honest. But then again, man, if that was true, CNN would be saying it. And Joe Rogan is one of those unique people who is actually big enough. His audience is loyal enough to him. He has enough money. He has enough security. He's got to stand up. He's got to man up and be honest. Dude, don't apologize for something that you're not morally guilty of. Okay? Yeah, you look bad in a supercut. They could do that to literally anybody. And fortunately... Someone actually did do that to one of Rogan's key attackers this weekend. Don Winslow, this guy, Don Winslow, who I guess is an author, he reached out with this after this new video came out and he wrote to The Rock and he said, Dear The Rock, you're a hero to many people and using your platform to defend Joe Rogan, a guy that used and laughed about using the N word dozens of times is a terrible use of your power. Have you actually listened to this man's many racist statements about black people? And this is one of the trigger moments this weekend. 
and The Rock, he puts out a statement. Oh my goodness, I've been educated now. Oh, I just received an education about how Joe Rogan is not the the good and decent guy that everybody perceives him to be. No, he's actually a Klansman like Joe Biden's mentor in politics. Yes, Joe Rogan, the Klansman. I remember on his show when he said, if you don't vote for Joe Biden, you ain't black. I remember when he said that. Oh, no, no, wait, that was Joe Biden. The man, all the wokest people in the world, and these people right here like Don Winslow, voted for because they believed that Joe Biden was going to solve racism. He was going to fix all the racism of President Trump. President Trump said there are very fine people on both sides. Except that's not what he said. It's not what he said at all. And if you actually listen to his statement, you can very clearly hear him say, Not the neo-Nazis and white supremacists who should be condemned at all times. That's what he actually said. But they don't care because their point isn't racial healing. It's not equity or equality or anything else. It's power, only power. And the only way that they hold on to power now is through censorship. So what do they want right now? More censorship. So this account on Twitter broke this Don Winslow, Joe Rogan thing down pretty well. I want to share some of this with you. Uh, the account is called Vocal Distance. Beautiful play on words, I guess. So Don Winslow tried to get Joe Rogan canceled for saying the N-word. It turns out that in his books, Don Winslow has used the N-word a lot. And I mean a lot. So here's a very long thread of times Don Winslow has used the N-word in his books. And he starts posting them. And he has a book called The Force. And there's just example after example, screenshot after screenshot of the ebook with that word highlighted throughout. And then he has another book, Savages. Same thing. Another book, The Gentleman's Hour. Same thing. Another book, Way Down on the High Lonely. Same thing. He has used the N-word far more times than Joe Rogan. He uses it over and over and over again. And you can imagine that Don Winslow would say, well, that's not me using that word. That's one of my characters using the word. And I was using the word in context of that character to point out that the character is racist. Now, I might agree that that is a valid use of the word because the word is real. And expressing the word is real. And there are characters in the world who do use that word. And we should be able to write those characters true to who they are. Part of the experience of learning how painful that word is for some people and learning how that word inflicts pain is to actually have the context of works of art, of literature, so that that word is actually illustrated in a real life circumstance. And it's not just something that makes you edgy for saying. And it's not just a racial epithet that you use to demean people. There is a broader context that allows us to understand what the word really is. And Don Winslow would probably make that argument for himself if granted the opportunity. But he's never going to because no one's ever going to make him. Don Winslow believes that he is the canceller and never the canceled. But what his argument amounts to is the claim that as a white man, which Don Winslow is, there are in fact times where you can use that word 
and it's acceptable. That's the argument he makes by using it. Unless he's going to cancel himself and ask for his books to be retracted. I mean, actual classic works of literature, not written by Don Winslow, obviously, are banned from schools because they have that word in them. And that's Don Winslow's political side doing that. The cancelers are the ones that are removing classical literature from schools. But he can write his own? How's that? And if he can make an argument that there are cases where it is okay, or at least morally acceptable, or at least not morally repugnant for a white person to use that word, then why doesn't he extend the same courtesy to Joe Rogan, who wasn't using it in the bad way? But Rogan bent the knee. And how many more times is he going to do that? What is his show going to become once Spotify gets to control everything he says and the guests he has on? How much more is Joe Rogan going to submit to the mob and listen to the mob and take his cues from the mob? And this is a mob. It's not his audience and it's not a majority of people. It's just a small, loud, angry mob of communists. And there was a nice little piece in American Thinker about this. Lessons to learn from Joe Rogan's apology spree by Rajan Lad or Lad. Consider the following social experiment. There's a hall with 100 people seated within. Among them, only five individuals are given megaphones. Next, you seat an audience at a distance, such that the only sound audible from the hall are those emanating from the megaphones. The group then engages in a discussion about Citizen X, whose recent utterances have caused him to be embroiled in a controversy. The five individuals in the hall with megaphones want X banned from public life forever. The remaining 95 in the hall have varied opinions. Some want X to apologize and continue. Some want him to continue without apologizing. Some think X should refrain from controversial topics, and some haven't heard of X. The people with the megaphone interrupt and heckle anybody who supports X. After the discussion is finished, you poll the audience about their conclusions from the discussion. A vast majority will tell you that almost everyone in the hall wants X canceled. This is an allegory for the recent attacks on Joe Rogan. The detractors are a minority whose voices are amplified by the media and various vested interests. Rogan has been a target for quite some time for deviating from groupthink. Back in 2019, Rogan had caused controversy by stating the obvious about Biden's rapidly declining cognitive abilities. Last October, Rogan has exposed CNN for misrepresenting alternative COVID treatment. Rogan is a liberal who supports Bernie Sanders and Michelle Obama. But the micro mob wants total surrender. They think the recent controversies will enable them to force Rogan out forever, labeling him a racist and anti-vaxxer wacko and damaging him to an extent that no other platform will accept him. The goal is also to make an example out of Rogan and to deter other aspiring rebels. How did Rogan and Spotify react? Rogan has apologized twice. Spotify removed 113 previous podcasts featuring Proud Boys founder Gavin McInnes, Michael Malice, Alex Jones, Milo Yiannopoulos, etc. But apologies and capitulation only embolden the mob. In the coming days, expect the mob to find misogynistic, homophobic, xenophobic, transphobic content. 
Rogan has done 1,770 podcasts, most of which are two to three hours. So it isn't too difficult to extract clips and create montages that strip all the context. The micro mob will compel a mass exodus of artists from Spotify and Spotify will be left with no choice but to sack Rogan. The lesson for all here is simple. You cannot appease an unruly, irrational mob by groveling before it. The merciless micro mob will not relent until they destroy their target. They can never be won over by kindness or begging for mercy. The only way to prevail is to take them on frontally, ridicule them and continue to do exactly what you want. And again, I spent all of last year ridiculing these people because they deserve it. And it's the only thing that works. They are all about their self image. There is nothing else that matters. They want the cheapest, fastest, easiest way to look like they are good people while doing absolutely nothing. That is why people like Nancy Pelosi go out and champion climate change while spending $500,000 since 2020 on private jets. Half a million dollars while millions of families in this country were put out of work by her and people like her. And she spends half a million dollars on private planes. And I'm not going to bother wasting the time to show you the clips of The Rock talking about trannies and a million other things. Oh, no, I just referenced the word tranny that The Rock used. What am I, transphobic now? Give me a break. The question remains, what is the future for contrarian voices such as Rogan? And I would say that future is very bright unless you go out and grovel like a little bitch. They probably have to function independently and operate primarily on money coming from subscriptions. They will need an IT infrastructure not tied to big tech. Thank goodness one of those is forming. And there are other platforms, and there are ways to make money on subscriptions. Thank goodness. We already have all that. The parallel economy is being built as we speak. If the micro mob comes knocking, they cannot apply their usual tactics of targeting sponsors and compelling big tech to force them off their servers. If there are many such voices, they can form a consortium that will guarantee free speech. Beyond Rogan, this should hopefully convince the small section in the GOP who are skeptical about President Trump getting the nomination in 2024 owing to his tone and temperament. They wonder if a better behaved nominee would be less prone to attacks from the mob. The Rogan controversy proves that this isn't about tone or delivery. The micro mob just wants to silence any differing perspective. When establishment darlings such as John McCain or Mitt Romney ran for president, they were called racists and bigots too. The difference is they swallowed all the insults with an awkward smile. Trump is a rarity in the GOP because he never allows the mob to get away with anything. He almost relished confronting his opponents and relentlessly mocking them. It helps that he does it with great humor. It is this rare fighting spirit he brings to the GOP that makes him so popular. A mild-mannered candidate will probably grovel like Rogan and even surrender his agenda. And that is exactly right. Joe Rogan has all the power here. Joe Rogan should be the driving force behind free speech platforms. He could probably take ownership stake in one with how important he could be to launching one. And instead, he's apologizing to Spotify. Spotify CEO went out and apologized to his employees, his employees. Honestly, a CEO of a mega corporation 
is groveling before a bunch of little millennial communist child brains just so that he doesn't have to take any more heat. This is a complete inversion of how authority in society should function. This is Orwell times 10. We are on the verge of having the situation where parents are being ratted out by their children for wrong think. And I'm sure it's already happening in some places, just not in a uh, formal official context yet. But that's on its way if we keep traveling down this path. And man, you know, I want to love Rogan. I have listened to hundreds of episodes of the Joe Rogan experience. And some of the thinkers he's brought on there have helped me form my thoughts and change my mind in countless ways. I want to be on Joe Rogan's side, but Joe Rogan is not on our side. Okay. He has had ample opportunity to bring on guests to actually talk about the most important subjects in the world. And instead he has stuck completely to the central narrative. Even when McCullough and Malone came out in December, maybe December, January, that was way too late. Yeah, fine. Maybe it was the knockout blow for the COVID narrative. But the COVID narrative was already stumbling around the ring. There was no chance it was ever going to get back up and retake control. And that's probably why they're trying to execute a super spreader event in China right now. But that's a different subject. It's been two years that America has been dealing with the two greatest concurrent crises it has ever faced and the biggest potential voice for free speech that could have been pushing this conversation forward the entire time could have been actually concerned about people's freedom and ability to feed their children and keep their jobs and resist an experimental gene therapy has been virtually absent and now he's apologizing it's just sad. And so Wokal Distance had another Twitter thread, and he was responding to a question asked by the comedian Andrew Schultz. He said, who do you think is behind this attack on Rogan? And so he answered, since you asked and I love your work, I'll tell you, this is a professional political attack. Three waves, one right after the other, is not a coincidence. Good spacing, good timing, so it's absolutely professional. But who was it, you ask? That takes some digging, but... The video compilation of Rogan saying the N-word was dropped by Patriot Takes. That's the account, Patriot Takes, six days ago. You see the video in the tweet in pick one, and Patriot Takes takes credit for republishing the information in pick two. That they take credit is important, and you'll see why shortly. As you can see in their bio, Patriot Takes is partnered with a group called Midas Touch, M-E-I-D-A-S Touch. And this is where it gets interesting. Who is Midas Touch? Well, they are a professional political organization. In fact, they are a Democrat super PAC run by three brothers, Ben, Brett, and Jordan Maisalis, or Maisalis. All of them have worked in media and have expertise in understanding and manipulating media. The most important thing for us is that Brett was a social media manager for Ellen DeGeneres and is an expert editor, which matters because Patriot Takes works with Midas Touch. And I'd say it's a safe bet that given their expertise in social media, the N-word video was created by Midas Touch, but we are not done. And there's some doubt about whether or not that was actually who created it. And 
it's he notes later, it's important to understand he's saying that they had a hand in this process. And that is clear. Midas Touch is a super PAC. Well, what's a super PAC? A super PAC is a political advocacy group with a special twist. Super PACs may raise unlimited sums of money from corporations, unions, associations, and individuals, then spend unlimited sums to overtly advocate for or against political candidates. This means a super PAC can take in unlimited amounts of money and then spend it however they want politically. Midas Touch is a super PAC. They can take in as much cash as they want. $4.7 million for the 2020 cycle and $1.5 million for the 2022 cycle. To be exact, that's a lot of money going to three brothers. To recap, Midas Touch, a super PAC, which can collect as much cash as it wants from pretty well anywhere and is a professional strategy and media firm run by people with deep ties in entertainment, likely had a hand in the N-word video Patriot Takes used to attack Rogan. So the question is why? Why are they doing this and what do they have to gain? I think a clue can be found in the letter Patriot Takes wrote about all of this. Look at the highlighted part. And he points out that the video has received millions of views. And I have a slightly different interpretation of the words in this letter. I think he may have been referring to Rogan's podcast videos, which have all received millions of views. But he goes on. He talks about how Patriot Takes is bragging about the millions of views and that they made the center of the national conversation and that they are seeking clout and it would be so great to take down Rogan. I'm not sure I agree with all of that conclusion, but the rest of this is still very important. Woke people and legacy media groups have been trying to cancel Rogan for ages because he steals their audience and doesn't play by their rules. Rogan also offers an enormous platform to people like Jordan Peterson that woke progressives in media circles really don't like. And one of the reasons they really don't like Jordan Peterson is because Jordan Peterson actually understands the threat of communism and understands that that's what's happening in the world right now. It did take him way too long to realize that the COVID industrial complex was actually just communism in disguise, but he's making up for it. The group that takes out Rogan would gain a lot of clout and a lot of power. The group that can say, we canceled Rogan. If we can get him, we can get you too, would be able to swing a very large stick. And that's what this is ultimately about. It's a play for power. In short, Midas Touch is a a political super PAC that is very likely behind the Patriot Takes account. They're attempting a viral hit on Joe Rogan so they can take him out both because they don't like him and because they want monetizable clout for having done so. And he says, so, Andrew Schultz, that's who's behind this. The question is, what can we do about it? If every person who Joe helped out said, we are with him and we will tell our audiences to cancel Spotify if they cancel Joe, this would be over in a day. The next thing, if everyone won't stand up, we need brave people to lead organic pushback. Brett Weinstein has been doing this and good for Brett Weinstein. It needs to be made clear to Spotify that if they cave, they will pay a significant cost. We have to make that clear. They need to pay a cost for this. If we can do those things, I think we can protect a guy who has done so much for so many. And then he points out examples of an orchestrated uh, Twitter campaign to cancel Rogan based on that video. And of course, all of this is orchestrated. I've been talking about how orchestrated this is for probably at least six weeks now, Since Joe Biden began publicly requesting more censorship from companies like Spotify, there is no organic movement to censor people's speech. It is all generated in the same way. The government 
coordinates with think tanks and corporations. The media reports about it. They think they get people on their side. If they can drum up enough anger like this controversy here, then they can go in for a second round and they will keep doing it until they get what they want. This is the same process they have used for at least five years now. They have been doing this stuff nonstop about any issue they want. Remember what they did to Brett Kavanaugh. They made up rape claims. Then they made up other rape claims. It was all bullshit the entire time. No one had an ounce of proof about anything. And yet they destroyed that man and his family. And thank goodness he stood there and took it. I mean, I don't know if he's going to be a good Supreme Court justice. That is very up in the air. But hopefully Trump made a good pick. But isn't it incredible that the Democrat Communist Party and all their little woke communist supporters are always telling us how they're the defenders of black and brown people and they're the defenders of BIPOC people and AAPI people and LGBTQIA plus 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 people and they're the defenders of poor people and they're the defenders of democracy and instead all of those are just cultural weapons that they wield to gain more power while actively harming all of those communities. And there was another small development on the Rogan front. It may mean nothing, but the CEO of Rumble put out a statement offering Joe Rogan $100 million over four years to move his show over to Rumble promising that they would not restrict his speech on any account. And I don't know if that's going to do anything. I have heard from sources I consider reliable that Rogan's deal at Spotify is worth significantly more than a hundred million dollars. And if that's the case, the money issue alone might be prohibitive for him making the move. I don't know if he could get out of the contract and I don't know if he would be able, due to that contract, to take his show somewhere else. We'll see. The part that makes it interesting is the fact that Rumble already has a licensing agreement with Trump's media company and potentially Truth Social. I still am of the mind that it is possible that Trump might acquire Getter and Gab or some other social media properties to fill out what truth social would be. And that would be interesting because these companies have in Gab's case, bought their own servers, created their own payment systems. They have a lot of the similar features to Facebook, including, you know, the Gab TV stuff. So maybe that's a huge asset to truth social. All of these companies have withstood whatever level of attack they've been under. And of course, we all remember what happened with Parler last year when Amazon Web Services took them out of the Google Store and the App Store in the aftermath of the very violent insurrection as a way of silencing the free speech and free speaking community. So there is some level of risk to having Truth Social in those app stores, potentially, depending on what infrastructure is actually behind Truth Social, and we don't know that yet. But one would have to assume that Trump is not going into this project blindly and that he should have those contingencies covered so that 
the site actually can be fortified and stay online. And if all that is the case, then there may well be a play there for Rogan. And I would hope that Rogan would seize that opportunity and go forward like that. Free speech actually does matter. Open conversation matters. That's Joe Rogan's brand. That is what we expect from the Joe Rogan experience and Joe Rogan himself. And it's so strange to me that knowing that he still went ahead and lit his entire brand on fire by apologizing now multiple times. Switching subjects without a segue. I have been following Daniel Horowitz's work in The Blaze on the story about the DMED, the DOD's epidemiological database. So this is his newest piece today. The Pentagon's response to the explosive DOD medical data is an even bigger story than the data. One thing is clear about the revelation of the 2021 military epidemiological data and the military's response to it. There is undoubtedly a public health and national security crisis in the military, and the Pentagon's reaction only seems to be concerned with exonerating the vaccine, not fixing its own alleged problem. It is now certain that the military's health surveillance system, DMED, showed a massive increase in sickness and injury diagnoses in 2021 over previous years, particularly in the neurological, cardiovascular, oncological, and reproductive health categories. The military, in a very terse and cryptic statement to PolitiFact last week, admitted as much but claimed without any further explanation that the data in the system accessed by several military doctors working with attorney Thomas Renz was only a fraction of the true numbers that existed. In the words of the Pentagon spokesman, it was a glitch in the database. Where those true numbers existed, why weren't they in the system for five years? What exactly was in the system and why the 2021 numbers were accurate according to the DOD account remain a mystery. However, one by one, the military public health officials have been adding back random numbers to the 2016 through 2020 codes. I'm told by Renz and two of the whistleblowers that throughout the past week, they have queried the same data again. And in most of the ICD categories, they have found that the numbers from 2016 through 2020 were increased exponentially to look as though 2021 was not an abnormal year. This has been done without any transparency, any press release, any statement of narrative, and sloppily in a way that makes the already unbelievable narrative simply impossible to believe. In addition to believing that every epidemiological report for five years was somehow completely tainted with false data, including during the first year of the pandemic itself, we would have to believe that the minute they discovered this from Renz, they suddenly discovered the exact numbers, a five-year mistake fixed overnight. Just take a look at the following statement given to the Epoch Times, the only other public comment delivered by an authorized Pentagon spokesman. Comparing the DMED database to the source data contained in DMSS, AFHSD discovered that the total number of medical diagnoses from 2016 through 2020 that were accessible in DMED represented only a small fraction of actual medical diagnoses for those years. In contrast, the 2021 total number of medical diagnoses were up to date in DMED. Comparison of 2021 to 2016 through 2020 resulted in the appearance of significant increased occurrence of all medical diagnoses in 2021 because of the underreported data for 2016 through 2020. 
AFHSD, has taken DMED offline to identify and correct the root cause of the data corruption, said Major Charlie Dietz. That's it. They are only concerned with downplaying any potential culpability of the vaccine, not explaining how they were flying blind, according to their official narrative, on such an important endeavor for so many years. Just consider the fact that at last week's meeting of the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, officials revealed that they have been monitoring vaccine safety data from the DOD, among other places. You know what that means? The CDC was looking at data for months that showed insane safety signals and did nothing about it. And somehow nobody in HHS or the DOD all along thought the data was a glitch. Moreover, the DOD's new data that was somehow updated so quickly is impossible to believe for a number of other reasons. Take a look at the top line number of ICD codes in 2016 through 2020, as reflected in the data before the DOD tampered with it to input the new updated numbers. Here's the original data of total annual outpatient diagnoses in DOMED before the Pentagon changed it. And he has a graph there showing a massive expansion, the numbers going up from around 2 million each year to 21 and a half million. And here's the top line tally for 2016 through 2020 based on the new numbers. And right there, you have basically no pattern whatsoever. This is a bar graph presentation from Thomas Renz contrasting the 2016 through 2020 total outpatient ICD diagnosis codes in the military before the DOD change and after the change. As you can see, during a typical year, there were about 2 million diagnosis codes, jumping almost tenfold in 2021. However, based on the changes made last week, 2021 is exactly in line with every other year, even though 2021 remains slightly lower. The data does not include numbers from December. Here's the problem with such an alleged presentation of the data. Putting the vaccines aside, the DOD's new model would literally erase the existence of COVID off the face of the planet as if we never had the biggest pandemic of our lifetime. Even if the vaccine never caused a single doctor's visit, COVID alone had to increase the codes. Yes, the military is generally very young and deaths and hospitalizations were relatively low, but it's impossible to believe that especially during the vicious Delta outbreak since the summer, there was no increase in COVID-related doctor's visits. Just long COVID alone had to register a meaningful increase. Ironically, the Biden administration is forcing a vaccine mandate for a virus that, according to this alleged new data, didn't cause even a 1% increase in baseline outpatient doctor's visits this year, the data originally reflected on DMED that was downloaded by the whistleblowers a few weeks ago makes much more sense because it accommodates both COVID and vaccine injury, which would explain the unprecedented increase. Now, obviously, COVID alone can't explain all the increases because some of the specific data points presented have already been associated with the vaccine injury per VAERS and other studies as opposed to the virus. More fundamentally, it is simply ludicrous to suggest that there are this many diagnoses in the military in a given year. All active duty soldiers have to be medically screened. Obesity, diabetes, and heart conditions are very rare, and the population is generally very young. If we really have over 20 million diagnoses every year in the military, consisting of about 1.4 million active duty personnel, there is something seriously wrong, and that in itself is a huge story. Let's drill down to some specific ICD codes to drive home this point. And he shows the charts for diseases of the nervous system. 
before and after the data update. We are to believe there was zero increase in the year of the Delta pandemic, as well as what we already know from the civilian world about vertigo and migraines following the shots. We were all shocked by the percentage increase, but to say there was no increase whatsoever defies any expectation. Moreover, we are to believe that there are nearly 1 million nervous system diagnoses in the military every year in a fighting force of 1.4 million. To further explore this point, let's look at the number of pulmonary embolism diagnoses before and after the DOD fixed the data. Blood clotting in the lungs is a clear consequence of the spike protein, which sticks to CD147 receptors on blood vessels. And he shows the numbers before and the numbers after. Same significant difference as the other charts. While even the revised numbers do show some degree of increase, it is not enough to account for the unprecedented nature of both COVID and the COVID vaccines. But the more serious issue is how can a military of healthy young people have such a high baseline of pulmonary embolisms every year? One estimate of pulmonary embolism prevalence in the U.S. is between 60 and 70 per 100,000 per year. But that is almost exclusively in the elderly and sicker populations. Soldiers 20 to 25 years old don't exactly get pulmonary embolisms. So even accounting for the fact that these are diagnosis codes and not unique individuals, some might have had a few visits in a year, the numbers are way too high. Finally, it's important to note that the DOD is so overprotective of the vaccine that it revised numbers to show zero increase in ailments that are universally understood to have increased, at least to some extent, because of the vaccine. Although they were smart enough to still show a baseline increase in myocarditis, everyone knows that, the new numbers would indicate zero increase for pericarditis. And he shows the charts before and after the data update there as well. The silence from both the media and congressional members of the House and Senate Armed Services Committees is astounding. One of two things is true. Either there was a mass vaccine injury in the military or our military has been very unhealthy and the Pentagon completely lost control over epidemiological surveillance of these health issues for years. Either way, this is the story of the year. And I guess we'll find out if that last part is true. But this is what happens now that we live in this postmodern, post-truth, communist utopia. They decide whatever's true, and then they tell us, and they say, well, we're not going to tell you anything else because that's just what's true. Meanwhile, we have all these enormous increases in serious health conditions that are otherwise, in the outside world, related to the COVID vaccine. And rather than try to explain those increases, they went back and switched five years worth of numbers, figuring that that'll clear it up. This is absolute corruption and absolute incompetence all wrapped up in the same story. It is rather amazing. Now, moving somewhat parallel in the COVID narrative, this is a piece from Just the News yesterday, Natalia Middlestadt. Fauci's agency funds 80% of NIH research using human fetal tissue. According to a White Coat Waste Project report, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, the NIAID, which Dr. Anthony Fauci leads, funds about 80% of taxpayer-supported National Institutes of Health experiments using unborn baby parts. NIH is actively funding over $27 million of research approved to use human fetal tissue, also known as HFT, the report explains, and $21.6 million of that comes from NIAID. 
However, over $88 million is the total amount that NIH expects to spend on HFT experiments this year. The HFT experiments funded by NIAID are being performed on animals such as mice being, quote, implanted with minced pieces of fetal bone marrow, liver and thymus to make their bodies mimic the human immune system, end quote, according to an investigation by White Coat Waste Project. The project's new analysis reveals Fauci is funding more HFT experiments on animals than anyone in the USA. Another HFT experiment funded by Fauci included creating humanized rodents at the University of Pittsburgh, and we discussed this on the podcast a few months ago. University researchers grafted the scalps of human babies onto rodents for an immunology experiment as they studied the human response to an infection in the skin. So once again, there are actually reasons out there to oppose abortion that have absolutely nothing to do with wanting to control a woman's body or her decisions or because you want to institute a religious theocracy. But the left and big tech and big media, the global communists, they don't want to ever talk about these other things. And why is that? Why can't they ever argue for any of the stuff they want to do on the grounds on which they want to do it? It really is sick. And the excuse that it's just all for science, we're trying to save human lives, no longer works. Because we know who these people are now, and we know they don't care about saving human lives, except perhaps their own. But that's just simply not what their project is. They are not trying to make healthier people in the general population. If they were, they would have never pretended that masks or lockdowns were scientifically valid mitigation techniques to stop the spread of an airborne virus that was created in a lab. And finally, because I don't want to make this a crazy long episode, this is from yesterday in the New York Post, Miranda Devine. Anthony Blinken's horrific stain on Albania, and it's all for George Soros. As if Secretary of State Anthony Blinken weren't embroiled in enough foreign debacles, he now stands accused of meddling in Albanian elections on behalf of billionaire financier George Soros and is being sued for defamation in an international court as a result. One of Blinken's curious first actions on taking office last year was to sanction the former president and prime minister of Albania, Sali Berisha, the anti-communist ally of presidents George H.W. and George W. Bush, who has been in opposition for eight years and who is a vocal opponent of Soros and his Open Society Foundations, which has been pushing judicial and electoral, quote unquote, reform in Albania. In an official statement and accompanying tweet last April, Blinken alleged that Berisha is corrupt and had, quote, undermined democracy in Albania and barred him, his wife and two children from entering the U.S. Berisha strenuously denies the allegations, is outraged that Blinken never provided any proof, claims the U.S. government is trying to prop up the socialist Albanian government of Soros ally, Prime Minister Eddie Rama, and has launched a defamation action against the secretary in a Paris court. Last year, the Correctional Tribunal of Paris agreed to hear his case. Never in my life was I accused by a person or an institution of corruption, 
Barisha said on the phone from the Albanian capital, Tirana. The opposite was true. I worked very closely with the U.S. government in fighting corruption. He says the sanctions are retaliation for his attempt to declare Soros persona non grata in Albania after he grew concerned at the malign influence of Soros's open society foundations on his country. I've never had a personal problem with George Soros. The problem is first he helped Albania to have civil society and I was thankful, but in a short time it became crystal clear that he was creating a monastic model of civil society. The Soros group dictated everything. So now we have a justice system totally controlled by the government. The heads of judiciary institutions in violation of constitutional laws are for the moment former communist prosecutors. Barisha, a cardiologist who led the movement to topple Albania's communist dictatorship, served as the first non-communist president of Albania from 1992 and later as its prime minister and opposition leader. U.S. Rep. Lee Zeldin from New York smells a rat and has demanded three times that Blinken provide evidence to back up his corruption allegations against Berisha. During a House Foreign Affairs Committee meeting last June, Zeldin said the move came, quote, seemingly out of nowhere. Zeldin said Berisha, quote, was also known to be an aggressive opponent of George Soros. What specific information can you share with the committee at this time to justify this dramatic move? Matt Palumbo claims in his new book, the man behind the curtain inside the secret network of George Soros, that Blinken has family ties to Soros. He points to the fact that the Secretary of State's father, Donald Blinken, the former U.S. ambassador to Hungary, and his wife, Vera, funded the Vera and Donald Blinken Open Society Archives at the Central European University in Budapest, which was founded and funded by Soros. Palumbo also cites a Soros Foundation's network report from 2002 in which Donald Blinken is listed on the board of trustees for the university with Soros as chairman. After Antony Blinken was confirmed as secretary of state, Hungarian newspaper Magyar Nemzet called it great news for George Soros. In November, Zeldin again wrote to Blinken demanding he justify his actions in Albania. This is now my third request for additional information since raising the issue of sanctioning Sally Barisha with Secretary Blinken during the June 7th, 2021 House Foreign Affairs Committee hearing, Zeldin wrote. Congress plays an important oversight role for the executive branch, including the Department of State, yet my office has received alarmingly few details in response to my inquiries. It is unacceptable and suspicious that the Department of State has not sufficiently fulfilled this request for additional information in a timely manner and has instead chosen to slow walk a congressional request for transparency. Blinken needs to come clean. If he has evidence that Barisha is corrupt, he should make it public. Otherwise, America's reputation is damaged. And isn't it amazing once again that the conspiracy theory is in fact not a conspiracy and it just is a description of the world as it exists. This is what George Soros does. This is what the Open Society Foundation exists to do. And it should be no surprise to anyone that the anti-communist is the one in trouble. It should also surprise no one that the issue revolves around the influence of George Soros and the infrastructure he puts in place by infiltrating a country to influence their elections. And I've done this story with so many countries already. Pretending that there's not a pattern, 
that there's not an organization to this when it all leads back to the same people all over the globe, always for the same purpose, always the same style operation, put people throughout the country to control everything, to turn a blind eye. And what do you get? He has secretaries of state in the United States. He has attorneys general. He has district attorneys. He has judges all over the country. They hire the election officials. They hire the lawyers. They fund the think tanks. The idea that not that many people could all be in on it makes absolutely no sense. It's like imagining the mafia and believing that they couldn't all be in on it. Like all the robberies and murders are just happening at random. Oh, we don't have enough proof to say that they're all tied together. Yes, they're all the same people, but (laughs) you can't go that far. We need to get a fact guy in here to come fact check us and make sure that we can get every single minute detail before we believe what is obvious right in front of our faces. I mean, we have multinational corporations. Those are all organized somehow and all working toward one goal. And that doesn't mean that their lowest level employees know the extent of the goals that are being discussed in the offices of the CEOs, often with politicians, because of course they don't. All you need the low level people to believe is that they're doing the right thing and that they're being rewarded for it. And we already have that. We have all of the Hollywood entertainment community, most of the country's professional athletes. Well, they were all supporting Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter is provably a communist organization funded by global communists. And there's a convicted domestic terrorist on the board of their fiscal sponsor. They work hand in hand with Antifa to burn down cities and riot and loot. But yet our entertainers and our athletes are all on their side because they think that they're doing the right thing. And of course, they're financially rewarded for it. Do they know the full extent of what Black Lives Matter does? Of course not. If they do, they don't care. If they do, they explain it another way. Well, you know, yeah, okay, say what you will. But if you don't support them, you're racist. This is all coming from the same place. It is all part of the same thing. And it is actually explainable if you take the time to understand it and think about it. It's not a mystery and it's not a theory. It is an actual conspiracy led by people who we can identify and whose actions we can identify. And we can also identify the results of those actions. And somehow it keeps popping up being the same thing all around the world. And we accept it when it's in other places. We accept it in Burkina Faso and Belarus and Myanmar. But we just pretend it's not possible in the United States. No, no, I'm an elite. I'm very astute. I'm very serious. I'm very smart. I'm very informed about everything in the central narrative. And I do declare that there is no way this could happen under my watch. Well, hey, child brain, you're not watching and everyone is watching you. So we'll see how that works out. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. 
Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why, but I'm happy about it. The platform's great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator. You can join the discussion at t.me slash I'm reasonable. I'm also on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcouture.com. You can also go direct to that at shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. I'll see you next time out on the range. Acting as moderator for tonight's broadcast. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social getter and gab at i'm your moderator i also have channels on rumble and BitChute. if you'd like to follow the writing you can find me at i'm your moderator.substack.com the merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture if you'd like to support the podcast financially the best place to do that is kofi go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range.